Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that size matters when it comes to the world economy. Studies done over a 25-year period found an unusual and unlikely relationship between average male genital size in a certain country and the country's gross domestic product. Apparently, once it's over 16 centimeters, the GDP crashes. No explanation as to why. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is someone I am so excited to be, uh, to be interviewing. I, we're both having a hard time not laughing about that cool fact of the day. Uh, is uh, Stephen Cutler, who is the author of a book that's just coming out called Rise of Superman. And this is a book about flow states and about the quest for increasing human performance. So if there's ever any guest who's been on the show, and we're nearing 100 episodes, who epitomizes this kind of research and all, it is Steven. And Steven's also cool because he lives in Taos, which is right by where I used to where I used to live, where I grew up, where I blew out my knee when I was a kid. And 
he also had Lyme disease, which he and I have in common. Stephen, welcome to the show. I can't wait to hear more about your book and about the flow state. Let's just let's just jump into it. Bring it. All right. So what is the flow state the way you define it? I've heard lots of different explanations from you know, pro athletes or from other things. How are you using the words flow state and where did, where did this come from? So let me define it first and then I'll give you a little history. Um, flow is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness. So this is a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And most people have at least a passing understanding of flow, right? If you've ever lost an afternoon to a great conversation, you get so sucked into a work project that everything else vanishes, then you've tasted the experience. In flow, attention gets so laser focused that everything else falls away. Your sense of self, your sense of self-consciousness, they disappear completely. Time dilates. So sometimes it can slow down like that freeze frame effect in a car crash, or it can speed up and five hours will pass by in like five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. Where the term comes from, historically, the research on flow goes all the way back to modern research, because there's other research going back before the Greeks and whatnot. Modern research on flow goes back to about 1871. It was called all kinds of different things until University of Chicago psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi came along. He performed what we now would call the largest global happiness survey ever. And he kept asking people about the times in life when they felt their best and they performed their best. He talked to everybody you could possibly imagine, from you know Detroit assembly line workers to Japanese teenage motorcycle gang members, elderly Korean women, Navajo sheep herders, expert dancers, expert neurosurgeons, the list goes on and on. Everybody agreed that when they felt their best and they were at their best, they felt flowy. Every decision, every action led perfectly, seamlessly, fluidly to the next. So that's where the term comes from. I kind of like to think of flow in the shorthand as kind of as near perfect decision making. To me, that's the, that's the very short, sh- short, short definition. But I gave you the long one, put it in context. I think we're good. Yes? It makes great sense to me. It's a state of peak performance and it, it's interesting. I've certainly felt it at different times in my life, but the most dramatic one that I've felt was actually from a friend, uh, one of my friends from school, and he decided to write a book right after Steve Jobs had died about Steve Jobs, and he put one together, and he was late for a meeting, and he's like, Dave, I, I don't know what happened. I started writing, and, and I just wrote the whole thing in five hours, and I missed meetings, and I missed all these things, and time just went away. It was almost like a verbatim description of what you're saying. And he was so excited, not just about creating a book for an icon, but that time had disappeared for him and that he just experienced this massive state of flow. Uh, and and certainly it, it it's something that when I write, when I really get into one of my research posts, same thing. Like, wow, it's 3 a.m. and I just didn't really pay attention to the last three hours. Like, they're gone. Uh, did you do this when you were writing your book? Did you hit a state of flow for the book? The best flow and writing story I've got uh, comes from a book I wrote a bunch of years ago called Small Furry Prayer, which is about the relationship between humans and animals. And <clears throat> turned in the first draft, the editor sent it back to me, and they liked up to page 110. And pretty much everything after that, they said, basically, throw it out and start over. <laughs> Ouch. I've never had writer's block in my life. Book was due in October. I get this edit back in April. Plenty of time. 
May comes along. I still can't get anything down. June, July. By August, I'm absolutely, I'm blind with panic. I have 250 pages to write in a month and I, I can't write a word at all. And I, uh, I go ski, I, I go mountain biking for the very first time, downhill mountain biking for the very first time, kick into a flow state, come back. I'm still in flow. I sit down, I start writing. I write for two and a half weeks straight, finish the book. I turn it in because I'm out of time and comes back to me. They've got notes on the first 110 pages. They have not a change on the next 250. <laughs> and here's the crazy thing. The book was a huge bestseller. It was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Wow. And literally the last 250 pages were written in a sitting in one, you know, two week period where I, you know, I slept a little bit and it would eat a little bit, but I would wake up and I was still in the state. And that's the most powerful writing flow experience I've ever had. That is, that is remarkable. Uh, when, when I was working on the very early days, I was thinking about writing the better baby book, the only book I've had published, um, which had a ton of research and all, I came out of a, a neurofeedback chamber in a, a very deep alpha state. Like I was literally, I was buzzing, like reality was kind of pulsing around me. And I sat down and without any effort, I picked up a pen and I wrote the whole outline for the book. Just, just, I, it came out of my subconscious, but it was one of those things I didn't have any awareness of the room around me. It was just like flowing onto the page. And that was actually the outline that I went with for the book, but there was no thinking or logic or planning. It just, just came out on the page. Well, so which is, thing. by the way, I mean, when you look under the hood of flow, when you look at the neurobiology of what's causing flow, everything that's coming out of here, everything we're talking about, what's really amazing is, of, of course there is, but what's still amazing to me, there's absolutely precise neurobiology. We know why all these things are happening. And for example, we do know that your subconscious is taking over through your conscious mind and flow. It's one of the things that happens. The prefrontal cortex, your whole conscious mind shuts off in flow. The extrinsic system is what it's called turns off and the intrinsic system takes over. And it's an efficiency exchange, right? During focused attention, when you need all, brain has a fixed energy budget, right? Uses its 20%, it's 2% of your body weight, but uses 20% of your energy. So it's a big energy hog. It's got a fixed energy budget. So when energy is needed for concentration and attention, the brain performs an efficiency exchange. It flips from conscious processing, which is slow, and very energy intensive, unconscious processing in flow normally I mean, this happens in dreaming it happens at other times what's cool about flow is it's the only time you actually get to watch it happen right that's one of the reasons it's so strange because you're essentially watching your subconscious mind process reality and normally you never get to see that it's it's remarkable what what you can do when you're in that state but how can people turn that state on so what's really interesting about flow is uh when Csikszentmihalyi did his original work, he, you know, he identified kind of seven conditions that describe flow, and we've just kind of gone through them, time dilation, vanishing the self, concentration, blah, blah, blah. He also identified at that point three what I call flow triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. Csikszentmihalyi identified three psychological preconditions, and these have since been extremely well validated. They're kind of at the heart of expert performance theory at this point. That was back in the 70s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s. From that point forward, a guy, the next thing that happened is a guy named Keith Sawyer came along. He was a psycho neuropsychologist at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Keith figured out there's a group version of flow called group flow when a whole bunch of people get in a flow state together. This is really common in startups or if you've ever seen a football team mount a fourth quarter comeback, mm -hmm. 
you're looking at group flow, everybody's on the same page. It's when a band hits their groove and everything just sounds amazing all of a sudden, that's group flow. So he figured out there are 10 social triggers that lead to more group flow. Wow. In the work we've done at the Flow Genome Project, which is the research organization that I co-founded that, that looks at this stuff, we've identified three more environmental triggers and one creative trigger. The creative trigger, it is very early days on the creative trigger research and I would assume as time goes on and we can kind of break creativity farther and further apart neurobiologically, that'll expand into more than just one creative trigger, but for right now we call it the creative trigger. So. We can go into more detail about what these are later if you want, yeah. but the way to get more flow is to essentially build your life around these triggers, which, you know, I always tell people, this is very radically different from self-help. You get far more benefits. So most of the self-help, human optimization stuff, they're saying five to 10% improvement. It's great. It's fine. Flow is a step function worth of change. Yeah. So let me give you a couple of examples. McKinsey did a 10-year study of top executives in flow. They found them were five times more productive in flow. That's a 500% increase. It means you can go to work on Monday, take the rest of the week off, and get as much done as your steady state peers. Learning is massively amplified in flow. Essentially, a quick shorthand for learning memory is the more neurochemicals that show up during an experience, the better chance that experience moves from short-term holding into long-term storage. Flow is a huge cocktail of five of the most potent neurochemicals the brain can produce, huge tags for memory. So in studies run by DARPA with military snipers, for example, they found they could artificially induce flow. They did this two ways. Once they did it with transcranial magnetic stimulation, yeah. so they knocked out the prefrontal cortex, found that snipers trained this way learned 230% faster than normal. Different non-military study run by uh, Advanced Brain Research in Carlsbad. I don't know if you know these guys. Uh, I do. Um, Chris Burke's company. Yeah, in um, fact, she spoke at my first conference on biohacking. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So she did a different exercise, right, where they used um, – sorry, I didn't mean to jump out of the frame. But oh, they used uh, neurofeedback to drop people into flow. Yeah, um, that's what I and did. Isn't that, that's the one you took part in, right? No, it was like that. I, I do a program called 40 Years of Zen. It's a week-long residential, like, like serious heavy-duty brain hacking thing, but – um, it, it's related, and, and you're, you're moving all the alpha to the back of your brain, so there's less in the front, and then you let it pulse from the back to the front. But similar thinking around letting the brain do its thing. So, Chris found it in, in their research, they could train novice marksmen up to the expert level in 50% less time. So you're literally getting wow. the 10,000 hours needed to, to get to mastery. Flow can literally cut it in half. Now, that's amazing. So that's different from I, everything else we're talking self-help-wise. I've got there's, it. I've got a caller because I, I'm doing TDCS to train myself to be a better archer right now. But I wonder if I need to like talk to her. Oh, about... she's they, they tra they've worked with archers. Oh. Go, if you go watch, she's got a TED talk that just came out, and they've got archers in the TED talk. Oh my so goodness! She's with archers. All right, I got a caller. Oh. She's awesome. Yeah, okay, so, sorry to take oh. off track there. That's beautiful. Keep going. The thing to know, and we can come back to this later because I'm sure you want to talk about brain hacking. But there's a, there, there's a flip side. The five neurochemicals we're okay. talking. about. These are the most addictive chemicals the brain can produce. And flow is the only time the brain cocktails them all at once, right? These are very, very, very addictive. So if you start going down this path and you start producing more flow in your life and you don't know what you're doing yet and it suddenly goes away, you can find yourself in the deepest, darkest, most suicidally dangerous depression possible. You really know what need to know what you're doing with flow. This is 
I always say as kids, we are taught not, we are not taught how to play with fire, right? Yeah. We're told not to play with fire. We don't know. Flow is definitely, you know, it burns twice as brightly. You will get from A to B far faster, but you got to know what you're doing because there are consequences. This is not, you know, take two pills and climb Everest in the morning. Uh, we're still looking for those pills though, right? Of course we are. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> well, so there's five neurochemicals and there's some lifestyle design things. All right. So you live in Taos, you run a dog sanctuary. What have you done to put your own life uh, or to engineer a flow state in the environment around you in your own life? So we'll talk about kind of before we drill into the specifics of the triggers, we're just like gateways into flow, okay. right? right? Creativity. There's a creative trigger, huge gateway into flow. Uh, flow, the environmental triggers, all of our work there was done by studying action and adventure sport athletes, which is kind of the core idea at the heart of Rise of Superman. We can talk about why, but what we learned from that, one of the things we learned is that risk is an exceptional trigger, right? Now, this can be physical risk, mental risk, creative risk, social risk. For big wave surfers, it means paddling into a 60-foot wave. For the shy guy, it means cross the room and talk to the pretty girl, right? It's relative to everybody else. And you can use it every which way, but risk is a trigger. We also know, we don't know exactly why, though I think it just has to do with focus and attention. Altruism is a trigger. So there is a altruism-based flow state known as helper's high that Alan Lukes, who founded Big Brothers Big Sister, discovered back in the 90s. And it's a little weird. Normal flow states, for neurobiological reasons, usually only last 20 minutes to a couple of hours. The neurochemicals drain out, takes a while to replenish. One of the great mysteries of flow is helper's high can last for days. So, you know, when we talked about my flow state for small furry prayer that lasted for two weeks, nobody quite knows how that's possible. Same mystery as nobody quite knows how helper's high lasts for days. But to answer your question, what I did is I threw everything out in my life. I only do things that create flow, and I only basically do three things in my life. I write, I throw the meat carcass down mountains at high speeds, either on a mountain bike or on skis <laughs> or any other way I can, and I work with dogs, right? Very, very sick and elderly dogs. So altruism, creativity, risk, that's essentially, you know, most of my life, um, so, you know, I have basically built my life around the states. And when we talk later, we'll talk about action adventure sport athletes, and I'll refer to them as the best kind of flow hackers in the history of the world. And we can talk about why in a second. But when you look at what they've done, the reason they have become the best flow hackers, the reason um, they're so good at this is they've surrounded their lives. So if you spend time with these guys, not only the, you know, the day is spent on the hill, they get off the hill and they go play music. Or they do other creative things, you know, on and on and on. If you surround yourself with flow triggers and businesses, by the way, that are really good at this, do the same thing, right? So this is fascinating. A lot of the spiritual traditions talk about how service to others is a key to being in, in better states, for lack of lack of another word. And do you think that's because of flow state connections? For sure, it's because of flow state connections. Okay. And what's interesting here is it's twofold because one of the things that happens in flow, so uh, let's, some of the neurochemicals that show up, you get dopamine and norepinephrine. These are performance-enhancing reward chemicals. You get endorphins, you get anandamide, you get serotonin, all performance-enhancing reward chemicals, but they all serve social bonding functions. Norepinephrine and dopamine, that's romantic love essentially serotonin is a social bonding chemical, endorphins is maternal love in children and uh, 
familial love and friendship love in adults. And anadamine is essentially the psychoactive that's released when you smoke pot. And it gives you that bro, I love everybody sense, right? So all of these chemicals really expand social bonding. So the important thing about altruism is not only does altruism put you into a flow state, but it expands empathy. In the, the flow state itself expands empathy. Psychologists talk about this and they say people are more complex on the other side of a flow state. Complex, you know, is a fancy way of saying you're fundamentally altered. And one of the ways you're fundamentally altered is be, by becoming more empathetic. What's interesting about this, because we were talking earlier about soldiers, is obviously the military is crazy about hacking the flow. This is massively amplified performance. They want super soldiers. What's interesting and what I, where I don't think they're going to get as far as they think they're going to get, or not for a little while at least, is you can't make a super soldier super empathetic. It's working across purposes, right? A super soldier can shut that portion of the brain down, not kind of be more robust. So it may, flow may actually not be the super soldier cocktail that the military thinks it is. There's a neat story about a, a samurai, and I can't quote the exact source of this, but it, this is from Japan, obviously. And, you know, this is a, someone who, who you know, his master was killed. So he you know, went, went all across and, and hunted down all the people from the other group that had done this. And when he was, uh, this could be a fable too, but when he was, was about ready to strike down, you know, the final leader of, of the clan that, that had, you know, killed his master, um, the guy spit in his face and, and the, he immediately stopped and put his sword away and, and said, I'm not going to kill you now because when you spit in my face, it made me, it made me angry and I'm not going to kill in anger. I'm going to kill you tomorrow, not in anger. And he walked away and of course the next day came back and killed the guy. So it, <laughs> kind of, kind of very, you know, samurai in a story. But I, I do tend to think for military applications, you know, if you can teach people to not go into the fight or flight mode that, that is written about so much uh, and to remain conscious and aware. And if they are doing something that they believe uh, is, you know, in, in the best interests of, of, you know, the world, that they probably can be in a flow state and do that. But it would be a pretty radical departure from, uh, I think, the, the survival mode that most people find themselves in. Like, I, that would be a different kind of training. Any well, thoughts it, on that it, idea? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit on something. So flow follows focus, right? The first thing you need is massively amplified focus. And we know when people talk about kind of you need passion to create flow yeah. or you need a lot of belief to create flow. Maybe, but what you really need is to pay a whole lot of attention. It turns out that we pay a lot more attention to things that we believe in and are passionate about, yeah. right? The, the, the idea that we're really deeply passionate about it is nice, it's important, but it's really a focusing mechanism. We're using that emotional energy to drive focus and that's why it leads to more flow. That makes, so, that makes really you know, good sense. Uh, you are, you, it's, a, it's a good point. Belief, patriotism perhaps yeah. could override the empathy. But at a certain point, because flow is really different in terms of – so, all right. Let's, let's talk a little more neurobiology and get a little deeper right, and, into and this. We'll, we'll center yourself on camera just so people watching on YouTube can see yourself. You're off to your right pretty far. There you go. This better? Other way. Sorry. Your right looks – maybe there's a backwards. There you go. Now, yeah. Now you're good. Cool. Okay. So we talked about this earlier. The frontal cortex shuts off. It's called transient, meaning temporary, hypofrontality. Hypo, H-Y-P-O, yeah. right? It's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down. Frontality is the prefrontal cortex. So one of the reasons, for example, self disappears. Your sense of self, your inner critic, that nagging defeatist voice in your head – 
That's your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. It's a specific part of your brain and it shuts off in flow. So we feel this as liberation, as freedom. One of the reasons creativity gets so massively amplified in flow is because the part of your brain that is always second guessing your good ideas gets turned off. Yes. Right? It's also one of the reasons you can perform at a higher level because the part of your brain that would go, hey, don't do that. That's probably really, really dangerous. That shut off too. That, that's the so, core of the right. training that I do is you've got to get that got to get a hold of that voice and like have a finger around or a, a, a grip around its neck all the time. Be like, totally. You? <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, time dilation, why does time slow down or speed up in a flow state? Because time's calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. When starts, parts of it start to wink out, you can't separate past from present from future. So you get plunged into what psychologists call the elongated now, right? The eternal moment. If focus and concentration stays really, really intense, if you stay in that flow state for long enough, the deactivation of the shutdown can go out of your prefrontal cortex and into your other lobes. And if it goes into the right parietal lobe, there's what happens is it's part of your right parietal lobe that helps you orientate in space. It's called the, well, its nickname is the object association area, OA, OOA. And this is, this helps you navigate through a room. So people who have brain damage or a stroke to this area, they can't sit down on a couch because they don't know where their leg ends and the couch begins. Oh, wow. In flow, this portion of the brain, deep, deep flow, can totally shut down. Well, when that happens, you can never, no longer separate self from other. So the notion of becoming one with everything, that oneness that spiritual traditions talk about, experience of unity, cosmic unity, that's a real thing. It's the part of your brain that differentiates self from other, turning off. And at that moment in time, you feel one with everything. So that is a byproduct of standard biology, but as we know from all the world's spiritual traditions, that's a fairly powerful empathetic experience. Yeah. So yes, patriotism and belief in those things can trump, you know, some of the empathy some of the time in really truly deep flow experiences, you literally are going to feel with one with everything. It is going to be a very real and profound experience. We know this because every mystical tradition in the history of the world yeah. has this experience at its center, right? So you're not going to be able to override that. Ultimately, flow will win. It will trump the patriotism, I believe. I, I have no proof, but I'm kind of talking out of my butt to just think about this. But yeah, th that that is a definite fact. When I talk with uh, with soldiers, uh, a few of my coaching clients are are former military, and and just from talking with various experts, it seems like like even more so than patriotism, it's my brothers, like the guys next to me, and. Well, the, so the idea of being selfless, right? The idea of Self service to others. Like you're doing this because it's survival not of you, but of your tribe. And and I it's think one of the great it's one of the great hacks the military figured out in the latter half of the twentieth century. You gotta remember, go back, watch Patton, right? Look at mm -hmm. Patton's original speech. The point of war is to go out and kill the other motherfucker before you, you know, get killed, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what he says. And that was what the army was, right? Go out and kill the enemy. And they realized that kill the enemy is not all that motivating. So it, they switched the whole theme and it became protect your brother. Yeah. Protect your brother is terribly motivating. Yeah. So, right, very, it was, a, it's a simple flow hack. It's a good example of a flow hack, by the way. But, it, yeah. It's really interesting, this, the service to others thing you brought out, because you made me understand something. Uh, the reason that I started writing uh, The Bulletproof Executive was because I, I just thought it was, frankly, unfair uh, that 
I had the money and just the ability to learn a lot of the things I learned. And I, I was just regretting that I didn't have any info to guide me to speak of. So I, I'm like, I'm just going to like write it all down and share it to people. And so the writing happens often in flow. But what also happened is people would send me an email like, oh my God, like my everyone in my family just lost 30 pounds, including, you know, my teenage daughter and, you know, stuff like that. I'm like, wow. And I, you know, I mean, I feel those when they come in and I realize that, that, you know, the knowledge is helping people and that increases my state of flow. So it's like self-replicating because every time you help someone and, and they're like, hey, it helped, at least for me, I'm like, feel more motivated to do more writing and, and all that. It's really fun. I've had, I had, I, I'll be totally honest with you. I like animals more than I like people most of the time. <laughs> really do. I used to run a phenomenal, phenomenal nonprofit that worked with teenagers in the inner city. It was with the LA Lakers. Oh, wow. It was Dave Eggers organization. It was a great thing. Except I had to work with people. And I hated it. <laughs> so the dog sanctuary came out of that. But that said, so I, I like my, literally my love of flow has always been about the ideas. You know, I wanted more flow for myself and my friends and things like that. It yeah. really, I wasn't, my altruism goes towards animals. But I gave a speech. This was, let's say, 2011. I think it was one of the first major flow talks I ever gave. I'd given smaller talks and smaller groups and done consulting work, but I'd never given a big talk. And all these people in the room, I gave my talk, and this 70 some odd year old woman who had been in a horrific car crash and could barely walk and was just kind of came up to me afterwards. And she was like, You know, I was all ready to give up, but then I heard your talk. And you can do that. I can do that. Yes. And it like suddenly dawned on me that this stuff, this like fetish of mine that I was obsessed with for totally personal reasons, actually had an application in the real world for other people. I was totally shocked by this. Uh, that's so you ended up inspiring people um, kind of despite yourself but you despite said myself. you Absolutely. said totally personal reasons and i have a pretty good feel about what actually drove you to start looking for the flow state are you up for talking about that yeah sure happy to tell the story and you know this story when i was 30 years old i got lyme disease and you know you've talked about this we have that in common better. right <laughs> right we have this in common and you know for any if somebody's listening who doesn't happen to know what lyme is and hasn't heard us talk about it. Picture the worst flu you've ever had crossed with paranoid schizophrenia. <laughs> that's pretty close. I was in bed for three years. I had I was like ten percent functional. My brain was totally shut off. No short term memory. No long term memory. I couldn't write. I couldn't you know I couldn't do anything. Couldn't even read because I couldn't remember the beginning of the sentence by the time I got to the end. So much physical pain. I couldn't walk across the room. And the doctors had pulled me off drugs. This was early days in Lyme research, and they really there was there was one drug. And my stomach lining started bleeding out, and that was the end of it. And they were like, well, we don't know if you're ever going to get better. And I had, you know, I essentially bankrupted myself looking for alternate cures, and nothing was working. And I was going to kill myself because all I was going to be from that point on was a burden to my friends and my family. I was not, was not a functioning human being at all. I was lucid for half an hour a day. Wow. And the worst point of it, a friend of mine shows up at my front door and says, we're going surfing. And I looked at her and I was like, you're out of your mind. We're going surfing. I can't walk across the room. I can't make it to my kitchen. We're going surfing. And she wouldn't shut up and wouldn't shut up and wouldn't shut up and wouldn't leave and wouldn't leave. Finally, I was like, you know what? I don't care. We'll go surfing today. I mean, what is the worst that could happen, right? And they had to like, they literally had to like walk me to the car and they put me in the car and we went to, this was in LA and we went to a place called Sunset Beach, which is literally like the wimpiest beginner wave in the entire world. And it was summer. So the waves were even smaller and the tide was really low and it was a crap day. The waves were like two feet high and they gave me a board the size of a Cadillac 
bigger the board, easier it is to catch a wave. And they literally had to walk me out to the break. Like I had people had to hold my arms and kind of carry me out to the break. And I got out there. I was out there about 30 seconds, and a wave came. And it had been a really long time since I had surfed at that point, but muscle memory seemed to take over. I spun my board around, I paddled twice, and I popped up. And I popped up into an entirely new dimension, right? I'm standing on my board, and I've got near panoramic vision. Time has slowed down. And most importantly, I feel great. I mean, I feel better than I've felt in three years. I, my muscles don't hurt. I'm clear-headed. And that, that wave was astounding. And quasi-mystical, and I caught four more waves that day, and by the end of that, I was so disassembled, you know, they took me home, they put me into bed, and people had to bring me food for, for 14 days. The 15th day was the day that I could move again, and I got back in my car, and I went back to the ocean, and I did it again. And over the course of about six months, when the only thing I was doing differently was surfing, I went from 10% functionality up to about 80%, and I didn't know what the hell was going on. Worse, when I was surfing, I was having these quasi-mystical experiences in the waves. I don't, I'm a science guy. I don't have mystical experiences. Lyme, as you know, is only fatal if it gets into your brain. So I was certain that the Lyme had gotten into my brain, and even though I was feeling better, I was losing my mind, and I was actually dying anyways. So I, what, this started out as a giant quest to figure out what the hell was going on with me. And, you know, very, very, very quickly, I realized a couple things about flow states. One, they jack up the immune system. All the neurochemicals for this in flow amplify the immune system. More importantly, to a guy with a chronic autoimmune condition, autoimmune conditions, Lyme disease, it means your nervous system is going crazy. Flow also resets the nervous system back to zero, so it calms it back down. So it's incredibly, incredibly common. All the st normal stress chemicals in the brain, cortisol, norepinephrine, get flushed out during a flow state, so the nervous system calms back down which is why I came back to health. But you know, very quickly, I started to see the same things. Once I started to get these flow states while surfing, they started to show up while I was writing, which was the big deal to me because yeah. I couldn't work, right? I had bankrupted myself trying to cure myself of Lyme and I couldn't work. So there was no, right, there was no way to make money, but suddenly like, I'd get into these flow states while writing and the more flow is it's like neuroplasticity of anything, right? You train the blade. The more flow you have, the more flow you have. So the flow I was getting while surfing was helping me get into more flow while writing. And suddenly I went from a half an hour a day of writing to four hours a day a day. I suddenly had a career again and I could begin to, you know, fight my way back. And this, you know, you can't play around with flow. I mean, I had used flow to get from totally suboptimal back to normal. Once I got back to normal, I quickly discovered that, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is pushing me really, really far, really, really fast. And you know, I started, weird things were happening. I would see it in my surfing. I would go out there and I would do moves that I didn't know how to do. Like, yeah. I had no idea how to do moves. I'd get in a tricky situation, I'd be in a flow state, and suddenly I was doing floaters and weird off-the-lip cup, things I could not do, didn't know how I was doing, and, you know, they were pouring out of my body. Wow. And I was like, oh, God, I wonder if you can get those effects in writing. And obviously the, the small furry prayer story, the answer is yes, you can. You get them anywhere. Um, it took me a while to know that. Um, and that, you know, that this was the beginning of the flow research and, you know, over 15 years, this is what led to the flow genome project and everything else. Wow. Um, all right. I'm really glad you mentioned the flow genome project. <clears throat> Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, I think people listening in their cars and all may not know about it. So what is sure. the flow genome project? 
Uh, what does that have to do with mental and cognitive and physical performance? So um, let me start by telling you a little bit about what Rise of Superman is about, because it'll make the Flow Genome Project make a little more sense. So Rise of Superman starts with action-adventure sport athletes. And the reason it does is if you look at action-adventure sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, et cetera, et cetera, as a data set, right? You strip out all the glamour, all the gnar, everything else. Just look at the data. What you see over the past 25 years, over the past one generation, is nearly exponential growth in ultimate human performance. So best performance when life or limb is on the line, right? The most rigorous, exacting, dangerous form of performance there is. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Sports performance, as you know, it's governed by evolution. It's slow, it's steady. You plot on a curve, you get a linear line. At no point in history do you get an exponential curve, right? It doesn't happen that way. So the question is, why is it happening now in action adventures? Let me give you an example, by the way, because it's helpful. Surfing. Here is a sport that is 1,000 years old, right? So from 400 AD to 1996, the biggest wave anybody ever surfs is 25 feet. Because above that is considered impossible. You just can't do it. It's beyond the laws of physics. Yeah. Just not unrideable. Today's servers are pushing to waves that are well over 100 feet. You get guys like Laird, like Laird Hamilton who like Laird, you see that. Sure. It, it just it makes my spine tingle. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> snowboarding is another one. This is 1990. The biggest thing anybody's ever jumped is the Baker Road Gap. It's up by you, right? Mm -hmm. it's Mount Baker. It's a 40 foot gap over a, a road. The biggest thing anybody's ever jumped when Sean Farmer cleared it, people thought were out of their mind. From 1990 to today, I was just talking to Travis Rice, who's another pro snowboarder, uh, a couple months ago when we were shooting our videos, and he told me that he believes he's cleared stuff that's 220, 230, 240. When in the history of the world does athletic performance quintuple in a decade or quadruple in, you know, in, in five years? It's, I mean, it's absolutely nuts. Motor, freestyle motocross, from the beginning, the invention of the motorcycle to almost to the middle 90s, late 90s, the backflip, the holy grail, it's impossible. Nobody, scientists said it can't be done because of the weight of the body. It's just, and then, you know, in 2002, two different guys lay down backflips, which is amazing enough. Yeah. But within four years, four years later, they get to the double backflip. So we went from <laughs> the birth of the motorcycle to the backflip, this impossible thing. It takes 50 years. And then we get to the double backflip in four years. I mean, are you kidding? So the question is, of course, what the hell is going on? Yeah. The answer, as we alluded to earlier, is these guys have, and gals have gotten better at hacking the state of flow than anybody else in the history of the world. And it's really fundamentally necessity is the mother of invention. What has happened is the level of performance has gone up so high and so fast. Literally, these guys, if they're not in flow, they're in the hospital or they're dead. So it's either, I say uh -huh. in, the, in the trailer to Rise of Superman, it's flow or die. And that sounds like this gross hyperbolic exaggeration. It's absolutely not. No. You're either in flow or you're going to the hospital. So these, got, these folks have gotten really good at hacking flow. So you asked what the Flow Genome Project was. Flow Genome Project was a collection of people. We came together originally because we wanted to advance flow state research. It was until fairly recently, one of the things I discovered, two things I discovered. One, I discovered nobody was looking at action adventure sport athletes. There were data, there was data that said, I'll give you one example. When they look at regular bat and ball sport athletes, right? Uh, Ken Rizivisa up uh, at UC Fullerton looked at bat and ball sport athletes and track and field athletes. They found that flow was an occasional rare experience in an athlete's career, 
right? It always shows up during gold medal performances, world championships, always there when somebody's winning, but it's pretty rare and they tend to define them very specifically. Pele, in this great interview he gave with the New York Times years ago, talked about um, having one f massive flow state for his entire career, wow. right? But they did a study on the Cheat River in uh, West Virginia where they looked at every kayaker, novice to expert who got in the Cheat River in a 24-hour period. Every one of them experienced flow. So wow. you're talking about rare and occasional to almost near constant. So we wanted to, A, use action and adventure sport athletes as a data set. We wanted to study them to figure out what they were doing because it was clear that they were the best at this and we didn't know why. So that was one thing we wanted to do. The other thing in those 15 years of research, both myself and the other people involved in the Flow Genome Project, we discovered that the psychologists were not talking to the guys working on neuroelectricity, we're not talking to the mm -hmm. people working on neuroanatomy, yeah. we're not talking to the neurochemists, right? On and on and on. So if we're really gonna map flow, we need to map the psychology onto the neurobiology, onto the physiology, right? For the complete yes, map. The whole system, that, not just a piece that, of it. Right, that's the, and that's the goal of the Flow Genome Project, to create that, what we're calling a heat map of flow. And the reason is, we only know about these 15 flow triggers, but if we get that whole map laid out, we can figure out where anybody, any personality, any walk, we know it's ubiquitous. We just know it's certain type of people get in certain ways. We wanna create a map that says, this is the exact way you can get in right here, right now. And, you know, basically open source ultimate human performance. That is a grand and amazing goal, um, Stephen. That, that's exactly what needs to happen. And the fact that you're pulling people together from different disciplines like that is, is critical. It, it, I certainly know some things about creating it from an electrical perspective, but I wonder about drug perspectives. Like you can increase those five neurotransmitters through a variety of things like tyrosine. Yes. So here's an, that's, it's stack. a great question. One, so let's, as, as you probably know, right, each of those neurotransmitters has a drug analog, right? Yeah. You snort cocaine, all that happens is dopamine gets released in the brain, brain blocks its reuptake. Serotonin is ecstasy, blah, 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 right? So here's where things get interesting. These five neurotransmitters, if you were to cocktail the street drugs, it'd be coke, speed, ecstasy, marijuana, and heroin. Yep. You would end up in a coma or dro probably drooling dead in a coma, take your pick. The brain, they don't cocktail artificially. The brain cocktails them naturally. So for example, if you go out and you do cocaine and ecstasy at the same time. The cocaine, the dopamine is more powerful than the serotonin. It will swamp it. You won't feel the ecstasy at all. You'll feel the cocaine. But somehow you can go all these things naturally from the brain. So my answer to you is there, it does seem pharmacologically that there's a way to hack this stuff. And I think we will get there. Yeah. The problem, as you know, is you know, we've gotten very good at neuroelectricity because we can now, you know, do all kinds of great stuff with EEG. We've gotten much better at neuroanatomy, our fMRI, et cetera, et cetera. They're getting better. Neurochemistry, we're good. We're a hell of a lot better than we were. We still can't measure neurochemicals in the brain beyond the blood-brain barrier. So it's yeah. all, right, we're working on microsensors. So Dr. James Olds, who's on our board, who works at the Krasnow, who runs uh, Krasnow University, they're working on really high-level microsensors that can detect all kinds of neurochemicals in the brain. But even if they get them, can I implant them in you? You know what I mean? Like, how do you run the test? What do you? So we don't know how to get the information we need to do the pharmacological hacks yet. That said, you know, I probably shouldn't say this on air, but what the hell? We're going to have this conversation. Okay. We should 
honestly. If you go out and you talk to people, what is the most frequent flow hack out there? Everybody will tell you it is a long, a medium bit of aerobic exercise. You basically run or jump rope or bicycle up until you get that endorphin release. Basically, when the moment pain goes away, yeah. you stop. You then follow that with an espresso shot and a bong hit, which they call a hippie speedball, right? The <laughs> breakfast jackets in every ski town. Right. Well, why, why, why would this cocktail actually work? Because you're getting endorphins from the aerobic exercise. The cup of coffee, as you know, you get a little bit of a dopamine firing. It oh, also yeah. focuses attention, blah, blah. And then anandamide is what you get from the THC. So it's essentially an artificial flow state. Ski athletes use it all the time. Athletes is a, you know, athlete, people in ski towns use it <laughs> the time before they go skiing. So, Mix these cocktails, this particular cocktail, with risk, with physical risk, and get that big dopamine push. It's kind of an instant flow state. So there are hacks for this. You can do pharmacological interventions or all that stuff. I've just, you know, I've been in a conversation. I don't know who I was talking to uh, recently about precursors. Could you do? Could you preload your body with all the yeah, stuff that, that you can bring that's, down? That's my approach. Okay, tell me more about precursors because it seems like this is doable. I have to tell you, I don't, honestly, this is absolutely, to the best of my knowledge, nobody's done the work. So one of the big things I want to start doing in the next year is figuring out what are the most important neurochemicals on the front end of the dopes, but uh, on the flow state, we kind of know what they are. And can you stack the deck with, by, you know, preloading with totally illegal over-the-counter precursors. It's mostly it, amino acids. Like, I, I know the people or I know the research. I We've, we've got to talk some more after this podcast. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I, we can team up with this one because it's, it's a big area. It's a big blank spot on the map as far oh as I know. Oh, my God. But, we, you know, we, we have great metrics for determining whether or not people are in flow states. Those have been really well yeah. developed at this point. So we the tests are not hard. Take a group. People give them these precursors take another group don't give them the precursors see who gets more flow over a one month period i'm fascinated by you know your hippie speedball idea there because i mean obviously i i know a thing or two about coffee and i i I believe there are some nuances in coffee that have an impact on on those very peak states but well that by the way i think you may your cop one of the other things i was thinking is we could we could because i think your coffee looking just looking at it i haven't looked deep enough under the hood but it seems like it boosts dopamine a little bit more, like you've exaggerated. Oh, I would love to do a lab study on that. So what, I, what I'm thinking is maybe the hippie speedball with Bulletproof Executive Coffee works better than regular coffee. And who knows? I would bet, but, I would bet a lot of money on that based on my own experience of flow states. Uh, the, the model, part of the model for flow states in my own work is that we have our reptilian mind. You can be in a coma and you'll still somehow breathe and your heart will beat most of the time, right? You have your mammal mind, which is where a lot of people spend a lot of the time. If you're in a sympathetic dominant mode, that's where you are. And then you have your prefrontal cortex, quote, your human mind. But energy in the body is going to go towards survival and replication of the species first, which means you fill these from the bottom. The reptile brain gets what it needs first. The mammal brain gets what it needs next. And then the human brain. And if you want to be at the very peak performance levels using all of your human brain or as much as, you're, as much as you know how to use, you need to remove impediments to progress along the way. So the experience that I've seen and enough other people have seen with, with 
the way I process the beans is that those little nuances at the very top, when you're trying to reach a flow state, you're trying to be in peak performance, there are things that can take you out of there that appears in some coffee and not in others. And this drove me nuts for years. There's one more hack on top of this that, that's worth talking about. Getting endorphins uh, can take aerobic exercise and all that stuff. The sleep induction mat, which I'm, I'm not trying to pitch my products at all here. It, it's a, a mat with, with spikes on it. You lay on it and you feel like you're going to die because your body's like, oh my God, there's all these spikes that are, you know, they're going to penetrate my skin. They don't. And after about three minutes, it stops hurting. And then the body goes into this like profound relaxation state creating the same endorphins that you're getting from this exercise. And I use it to go to sleep at night because you want to have That's, this wave. But, but it's the same So thing. I will tell you also, and I, this I learned along the way of okay. close to the weird, the strange things you learn along the way, there is in the SNM community, there is a SNM, a pain triggered flow state they call flying. And it's heavy, heavy, heavy on the endorphin release. Um, brought on by pain, but it's essentially pain triggered. So even S and M at the root of that, you're still looking at flow. You, you must go to all the good parties, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> you lived in New Mexico. You know nobody has parties here. I live in the middle of nowhere. Great you answer. Don't have parties here. That's hilarious. Climb mountains. <laughs> Um, I did not know about that. That's that's super funny. So there's, there's... I, I didn't either, by the way. But it, like when I started doing the research, so I was I was funny. I was, I was actually in the coding, computer coding. Yeah, produces a tremendous amount of flow. So and this is everywhere. Like if you go to the Oracle Developer Series, they've got a chat. I, I never thought of that. Of course, my background is computer science. I, I oh, oh my well, god, it's been there the whole time. That's awesome. If, let's take it one step further. This is uh, one one of the guys. One of the people I interviewed who's a big tech executive um, was, who's been around Silicon Valley for a long time said, look, look at Silicon Valley. The three things that built the valley, software design, network design, and circuit design, yeah. you cannot do well without a flow state. Mm -hmm. So he, what he said is if you're looking for a non-athletic, non-action sport example of what happens when a bunch of people start getting into flow regularly, Silicon Valley is not a bad place you, to start. You just taught me something I never understood. Uh, I, I taught four nights a week uh, during the rise of, of the modern web as we know it about web and internet infrastructure. And the reason now, in addition to the, the giving back and you're teaching a room full of people who are advancing their careers, but also you're drawing stuff on a board and you're doing, in my case, I was doing network design, right? So I was getting that high and I was getting the high from like, like teaching people, like helping them in their careers oh, yeah. at the same time. And I mean, for I, sure. I was buzzing when I was done with that. Oh my, I never even thought oh, yeah. of this. This is killer. Well, any, anybody who's got a, a career whatsoever in public speaking, like people think the lure of public speaking is this ego gratification. No, it's not. And no, you get up on stage, conscious mind is gone. Like I, every time I give a talk, invariably I'm at the end of my talk and I'm like looking at my last slide like there's a moment I come back to my body and I go yeah holy shit I must have skipped half the speech because there's no way I'm here like where did this be? right it's mm -hmm. a total deep flow experience the addiction to public speaking is the flow the ego stuff is all besides the point it's it's you get into deep flow doing it wow you get it yeah in fact I have to look at a video of one of my talks because I don't usually remember what I said like there's there's peaks and and valleys in there but yeah, it, it doesn't all stick because you're just you're pouring everything you have into it. Just I guess like a pro surfer would, although I never thought of that before. Yeah, it's I mean the goal at Rise of Superman, what we did with Rise of Superman yeah. is we said, look, we can basically take decode what these athletes are doing and apply it across all domains in society. So 
that's essentially the goal of the book, right? It's to say these 15 triggers, these athletes harness, here's how you apply them anywhere, you know? And, and we, we see this. You see companies like Toyota, Patagonia, um, Ericsson when they were around. These companies, Microsoft even, they have flow at the center of their corporate philosophy, right? Now, they're not as great at it because there's a lot of things that are off. People don't understand about flow, and we really didn't get a neurobiological picture of the past for the past five years or so, but you know, I think more and more and more flow is. There's already uh, there's James Labbitt, who's a VC uh, guy at Greylock Partners, yeah. uh, venture capitalist at Greylock Partners, wrote an article for Forbes where he talked about flow state percentage, which is the amount of time employees spend in flow as the number one management metric for building great innovation teams. And I think it's just the number one management metric. Period. I think what we're going to we're going to start now that this is becoming measurable and hackable. It's going to start. I think we're looking at the next giant kind of business revolution. And it's going to be interesting because you're talking about something that massively amplifies creativity, mass individuality, a lot of things that don't sit exactly square with business the way it was done last century. It's really going to force businesses to the 21st century. So one of the things that I think Google's doing in that space is – fuel for flow state, right? They're, they're feeding their people reasonably well. You go to Google, you can get access to much higher quality nutrition. And it seems like, you know, athletes are always looking at diets and all that when you give the brain the things it wants, I'm not talking precursors here, I'm talking fat and protein and glucose, like things like that, especially when they're, they're relatively free of the things that tweak small, like negative changes in, in brain behavior, uh, that, that it's a, at least it increases the odds of flow happening if it's not a cause. Do you buy that I, line of thinking? I absolutely buy that line. I mean, you know, my partner, Jamie Wheel, who I co-founded the, the Flow Genome Project with, um, who has done way more of the flow consulting work with businesses than I have, one of the things he always, he always says when, when, when he talks is, you know, a great deal of what you need to know about flow you learn in kindergarten. Get plenty of rest eat right, you know, really basic stuff. But, um, if they're, if you're not, if you're not dialed that way, it's not going to work. And it's a lot of it. For example, let's talk about getting plenty of rest. You talked about the fear response. The amygdala runs the brain, right? Your fear reaction runs the brain flow. You have to get past the fight or flight response. You got to be able to focus through that to get, to, to get into flow. When you have not slept well enough, when you don't have proper energy reserves and you're facing a difficult, challenging, dangerous, hard, whatever task, <clears throat> your fear level is going to rise because your body is not prepared and it's going to be harder to pass through that and get into flow. It, it makes so much sense. Amygdala dominance, which is certainly a state where I, I lived a lot of my life younger and a state where, honestly, where Lyme disease can help you to be. Um, is uh, it, it's unpleasant and it it's so common and I I think a lot of things people do on a daily basis encourage that you know you well it's also amygdala it's funny so let's just so your listeners can go can can walk away with one kind of flow hack that is useful right one thing that we can they can take away from from this that will really make a difference in their lives and it and it's interesting because it has a lot to do with kind of fighting against the amygdala so the biggest mistake most people make about flow is they think it's a binary. You're either in flow or you're out. It's like a light switch, right? Not true at all. Flow is actually a four-stage cycle. And a number of these stages don't feel flowy. So at the front end of a flow state, you're in 
the, the stage is named Struggle, and it was Herb Benson, the Harvard cardiologist who named it Struggle. He did a lot of the neurobiological, the neurochemical work on flow. It's Struggle because you're overloading the brain with information. So as a writer, this is my research phase. This is where I'm trying to figure out the structure of what, and you are getting frustrated. If you're an athlete, you're learning a new skill, and you basically want to take this almost to the point where you're about to lose your mind and then pull back. But during, this is when all your stress hormones, cortisol, norepinephrine, these are all rising during this period. Second stage is, and by the way, amygdala dominance in this, the second stage is relaxation. So you have to take your mind off the problem completely. If you've been working on, you know, an article all day, you got to go for a walk or a run or go build an airplane model or whatever you want to shut the mind off. If you're don't have enough self-control over your amygdala, you're not going to be able to get your mind off the problem. So you need that level of fortitude just to get the relaxation response. What happens during the relaxation response, you get a global release of nitric oxide, which is a gaseous signaling molecule everywhere in the body. It drops all the stress hormones out of your bloodstream and instead forges the release of dopamine, serotonin, anadamine, etc. all the good chemicals that you want in the deep flow state. So then the, that, that's your third state, the flow state. And here's more amygdala stuff, and this is the most important thing. After the flow state, there's a fourth stage in the cycle. It is a memory learning consolidation phase. So as we know, flow massively amplifies learning and memory. We know this. But there's a catch to this. Those neurochemicals are expensive to produce. It takes a little while for them to replenish, right? So you go from feeling like absolute Superman, I can do anything, in a flow state to feeling absolutely horrible because all the feel-good neurochemistry is gone and you no longer feel like Superman. Now, this is a, is a good and a bad thing. Well, we'll, t- we'll go come back to the good in a second. But the bad news is most people don't understand that there's a cycle going on. They get to the point where they don't feel like Superman anymore. Everything they've imagined their life could be in a flow state comes crumbling down and they get really anxious, really gripped, and you have to, to get back into flow, which is what you want. You want more of that Superman feeling. So the only way to do it is to move from this memory of consolidation, this down, into struggle. If you're super upset about not being in flow, if you don't have the emotional fortitude to just kind of push through that, you're never going to get up for the fight of struggle. Now, it is a good thing because you get crazy wild ideas in flow, and it's really good to check them out in the cold light of day. So after the flow state is done, if you brainstorming a flow state or writing, you always want to go back and read your stuff again and see what's good and see what's bad because not every idea you're going to come up with in flow is great, right? right. And so the state actually gives you a, a, there's a recovery period where you can do that, but so there's an upside to this stuff intellectually. The downside and where most people get really hung up, we talked earlier about the dangers of flow. People don't know about the flow cycle. When they start kind of using these 15 triggers to produce more flow in their life, they don't know that there's this four-stage cycle and you can't locate yourself on the map. You're not going to get into flow easily again because you're going to not be able to shut your amygdala off. Wow. All right. This is, this is useful, really useful information for people so that after you've, you've fallen out of flow, you want to go right back to struggle so you can jump back in. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think this might be one of the longer podcasts of the last hundred or so, um, because normally we would go about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. We've gone just about an hour and I feel like I could talk to you for about two more days. 
Stephen, give us the URL for your book. Give us the launch date. I'll make sure to send an email out to the people who are, are Bulletproof because I can't imagine anyone who listens to this podcast or reads the Bulletproof blog who wouldn't just completely salivate over reading your book. Like This is as as totally targeted as anything I've ever seen. So give us your URL and how people can find so you. So where you want to go is riseofsuperman.com. And uh, if you go there now, from now until March 4th when the book launches, huge crazy pre-sale campaign we're giving away everything from flow diagnostics to invites to live events to you know a full swag bag of cool stuff so riseofsuperman.com pre-order copy i think you can get 20 percent off right now and uh books out march 4th lovely steven thanks again if this podcast benefited you and you're listening right now please just take a second to go to itunes and tell other people that you like it or go to Facebook and click like. These are the things that let other people learn more about amazing stuff like what we just heard from Stephen Kyler today. Stephen, oh man, I almost forgot. You would have been my number two time ever. The question I ask everyone. We got to do this, <coughs> even though we're over time. The top three recommendations for people who want to perform better. It doesn't have to be just from your work. Your entire life's experience for people who want to kick more ass. Three things. Oh my God, really? And we're out of time? Oh yeah, um, no pressure. Well, one, <laughs> read Rise of Superman. More flow. Um, more flow, more flow, more flow. More flow, um, got it. Two, drink Bulletproof coffee. Oh, come on, really? Um, <laughs> I love it. I, but... top, top, top three things if you want to perform better. Um, okay, so first thing, I would. I, it's all about flow to me, but I, I, you know, people compete against the wrong things. People have this, mis they compete against their peers. Never compete against your peers. Figure out who's the very best in the world at what you want to do. That's your competition. Everything else is besides the point. Figure out, so I, to me, it's extreme goal setting, relentless hard work, and uh, okay, I, I, I don't know, but I'm going to give you one final tip that I think is real, awesome. that worked very well for me. I have discovered in myself, and I think any successful person I've ever talked to, the things that you succeed at are just the things you stick with. Eventually, you will always triumph as long as you stick with it. So what I did is I reduced my life to six core things, right? All of them produce flow, but I literally like everything else. If it's not one of these core things, I don't bother. It's wasting my time. I want to, you know, I, I've reduced it down to the things that matter most to me, the things that where my success is absolutely important, and I don't do anything else. And all those things, with, except for one, which is the marketing PR component of all this that I have to do. Um, and that's the yeah, part I don't love, I but, um, so this is fun. A lot of fun. Uh, that's that, I mean, that's, that's my number one tip. And then beyond that, it's more flow, more flow, more flow and drink coffee. <laughs> love it. Thanks again, Stephen. We'll make sure to put links to your book on the site as well. And this is going to be an exciting podcast for people to hear. So thanks again for, for jumping out with both feet and for the work you're doing. This stuff is incredible. Thanks so much. It's fun being here. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.